Kentucky Food Radio, coming to you each week with your hosts, Chef Weta Michael and Rona Roberts. And I'm Chris Michael. Rona Roberts is AWOL today. Has anyone seen Rona? Where is Rona? Rona is, uh, is listening today from Hope, Campsy Place. Hopefully she's home with a hot we cup she's of tea. Feeling, we hope she's feeling better. We miss you, Rona. But we have a fabulous guest here with us today. And we're going to do a quick intro of her as before we start doing our best bites. And she's a friend that I've known a long, long time, friend and compatriot, co-worker, but, you know, swinger among stars, we'll say. <laughs> we, have, we have Chef Stella Parks, uh, bon vivant Stella Parks with us today. And so we're going to um, introduce Stella more in more depth in a minute, but it's time for Best Bites. Chris, you've already told me that you... Mm, I had a grilled ham and Swiss sandwich that I made myself at home, and it was quite delicious. You're just saying that because, like, you ate it for lunch today and you can't remember anything <laughs> No, else. I didn't eat it for lunch today. No, I, I have to... I'm going to show mercy on you because right. I know you've not felt well for the whole week, so I'll let you get away with that. Thank you. But Stella, what about you? Well, um, my husband roasted a bunch of uh, small fingerling potatoes and tossed them with marinated shiitake mushrooms mm. and some kale, and it was like this warm room temperature salad where a lot of different temperatures going on. Like the mm. kale was still cold, the potatoes were roasted, the mushrooms were kind of mm. cool room temperature, had like a 
the vinaigrette had mustard and red mm. wine vinegar in it, maybe. I'm not sure. He made it for me, and that was really the best part of it. That's the best part. But it was salty and delicious and filled with carbs and kale, so And you I said you've just been licking salt? You've been going through salt-licking stages? Yeah. Recipe <laughs> testing as a pastry chef really, really lowers your tolerance for sweet. So and... much sweet! <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm into salt very much. <laughs> well, and I... Well, last week was St. Patrick's Day. I hope everyone had a lovely St. Patrick's Day holiday. So I ate tons of corned beef. I ate homemade sauerkraut, I ate potatoes, I ate boxed, I ate cold cannon. But what about soda bread? I ate soda bread. Okay. I had two kinds, white and wheat. I like the white with the raisins. Do you like the white with the raisins? I, I don't like the raisins, but I like the white. <sighs> you don't like raisins. Um, yeah, I like the white soda bread better. I had both. Um, and I had potato bread. Oh, nice. Which was really nice. So I had a lot of bites. As normal, I had too many bites, but all of them delicious. And I had a delicious beer, I have to say. I had stout, which I adore. I love stout, but I really don't drink it except for St. Patrick's Day week. And I also had a great red beer down at West Sixth. So those were my best bites. Well, we're going to take a little quick song break, unless Chris is not ready. But then when we come back, we're going to talk about... Chef Stella Parks. We're going to introduce her in more depth so that everybody can get to know her. And we're going to talk all about Easter foods, hot cross buns, soda bread, Japanese crazy cakes, and more. And more. <laughs> I got chocolate on my finger, icing on my lips, sugar diabetes. Said I got blubber on my hips I keep a nine line burning in the kitchen Yeah, so I can go downstairs and cool I said I got the Oreo cream sandwich Chocolate covered cream filled with the moon I'm in a cabinet. I keep some in a jar for emergencies, you know. I said I put them in the block and pop it in my car. I just love them things. Yeah, they get me high, then I can't get on booze. I said I got the Oreo cream sandwich. Chocolate covered cream filled with the blue. We're back with. Hot Water Cornbread, Kentucky Food Radio, here with our special guest, Stella Parks, and your host, Weta. <laughs> your hostess with the most. Michael. Yeah. So, yes, I'm Weta, <laughs> and I'm here with, actually, Stella, you know, you're pretty fabulous, and it's just, mm-hmm. and I know I'm going to make you embarrassed a little bit, but it's just, it's wonderful to have you here. And so Stella Parks is, right now, she is, she's, she's Lexington's most famous and most acclaimed and most talented 
pastry chef. And you've been a pastry chef for, I would guess, 12 or 13 years. Am I about right? Uh, maybe I'm I've, I've only little... been comfortable with the term more recently because um, I got the title slapped on to my hat um, right out of culinary school, which from, you know, any kind of legitimate perspective is not it's... real. No, um, that's right. So I've definitely been under the title longer than I've been accepting of the title. Yeah, but you were like, okay, I'm just going to go through your qualifications. Then we'll talk about your relative uncomfortableness with pastry chef. But it is true <laughs> that in... 2013 Food and Wine named you one of America's top pastry chefs. So yeah, that was really the tipping point when I had to be like, okay, <laughs> all right, we I can guess, use this I word. Guess I'm a pastry I'm chef. I'm not going to argue with Dana Cohen when she. <laughs> no, no, please. So you you are at least we're going to claim you as as our Central Kentucky's um, favorite and best pastry chef. And uh, but you're also an incredible food writer. And not just food writer, but in the way that you, I mean, you started a blog called Brave Tart, which was really, really cool in the way that you used photography and words and your own ideas around sweets and baking. And, but now you're writing for Serious Eats full time. And so you have a lot of experience as a food writer, a lot of experience as a chef. And that's, a, and you went to the Culinary Institute of America. Um, we, we all, everybody likes to bring that up, even though for all of us, <laughs> there's three alumni in yeah. here today. Uh, that It's sort of your, the beginning the of it. Yeah. <laughs> so welcome. We're really glad to have you. And it's a, it's just wonderful to have you in here and be able to ch- I'm, chat. I'm so happy to be here. And it has been far too long since I've seen the both of you. Although I'm, I'm in Smithtown reasonably often. Uh, scarfing down sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Chris and I are hermits. We basically hole up. You know where yeah. we live. We hole up out there in our cabin. And but you know what? I think uh, I one, do know where you live. Uh, you do. Keep and, that in mind. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about. <laughs> you know, I was thinking that uh, this is how time passes in your life. But there's this little memory that came to mind when. Um, when you told Rona that you could be on the show and it was this memory of you coming to the Holly Hill Inn with your mom and dad and your brother and you had not gone to the CIA yet. Oh, yeah. It was, there were a couple of times. Formative experience for me. Yeah, and you come there a few times as a family, Mm -hmm. but there was this one time and I remember, I think you may have been home on break or you had just started or you were getting ready to start and you were sitting in front of the China Hutch, which is table 25. And... I don't know. I just have this memory of your face just that night, the the glow of your family around you. It was it's such a sweet moment, Aww. and it's what I think of the most when I think about you. Um, so I don't know. It's 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 wonderful to see it. Well, you're coming here today to talk about all whatever you want to talk about, whatever we we have a million questions to ask you. But I thought just given that little memory that I had of you. I think you were still in high school. That's how old I am. Um, That's how old I am. <laughs> you're, you're, not, you're not old, sadly. Uh, um, what was? How did you become involved in cooking? I mean, I know a little bit, but did you have a childhood interest? And can you kind of take us from that point forward through the glitz and your time there? Uh, Pre-CIA. So before the glitz, though, pre-glitz. Pre-glitz. Um, Where were you? What were you doing as a pre, kid? Why did you decide to do this? Um, I baking was something I always did whenever we had babysitters. Um, mom, you know, my mom and dad would go out somewhere and they, you know, have some babysitter who was, 
you know, they, they were cool. We had a couple different girls that came in and, and hung out with us. And they were always, like, very um, trying to get us to do activities as opposed to just, like, watching TV. Mm-hmm. So um, one babysitter taught me how to clean, which instilled a lifelong <laughs> compulsion towards tidiness in my heart. And so that was what we would do is we'd clean up the house. Um, but another babysitter would always bring, like, a box of cake mix and some frosting, and we'd make cupcakes. Um, and she'd have, like, a little thing of different food dyes. And so we would, like, put the um, frosting into like little like zip top baggies with like a few drops of dye and that way we could like mush up the colors and like make fun stuff as kids without making a huge mess and I just like loved like massaging those little bags (laughs) with a little bit of color in it Um, and just like getting all these different colors and just like decorating the cupcakes so my interest started out very superficial Um, and my dad baked a little bit at home. We'd do biscuits and stuff. But well, your mom and dad both are fantastic cooks and real foodies. Yeah, you know? yeah. But neither one of them was, like, huge into baking. So that was kind of an area where I could grow into a little bit without anyone stepping on my toes or being like, well, this is how you really do it. <laughs> um, so I just started baking. And, I, you know, I read Cook's Illustrated. I can remember being... I must have been 11 years old and having a copy of Cook's Illustrated. It was like six different chocolate cakes from one basic <laughs> recipe. And you can, you know, swap out the buttermilk for sour cream or do this or do that. And There's not I a lot just, of 11-year-olds reading Cook's Illustrated. Yeah, it was it's really like, It was cool for me. And looking back on it, I'm just like, where was my pocket protector and taped up glasses? Like Now I understand all Rona's references to Star Trek quotes, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was definitely a, a nerdy childhood. Um, of baking, but really it was just like a, a creative outlet. I was not very fond of the out of doors. I did not play any type of sports. I did not want to be outside. So it was a, an indoor activity that I could do. Um, I think that's really how I got into it a lot. And, and then, it's very tactile. Yeah, it and was at very the end, satisfying. You have this beautiful thing that you, you and know, then, everyone loves. <laughs> and then everyone praises you, whether it's good or bad. If someone has, you know, a dinner and there's some kind of passably edible chocolate cupcake at the end of the meal someone's gonna tell you good job and thanks for making this so when you're a little kid like it's good to hear that from yeah. people um and then I started bringing stuff like that into school all the time I get the most obscure reason I could make food for a school project I started doing that so all my science projects were like food based not because I had some burning passion for culinary food science but um simply because it, if I'm going to do a science project, I might as well get cupcakes out of the deal. So that was kind of like... So you're a young kid, you're a young girl, you're baking, you're becoming compulsive about it, which is something we all share yeah. in the culinary field. We all are kind of compulsive. But at some point, you get a job, I believe, at the Glitz. At, at the Glitz. Which is one of my all-time favorite places run by two uh, of my all-time favorite people. My heroes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I started working at the Glitz... When I was 14, because it was so close to my house, so I grew up way out in the countryside, and the Glitz is like a 10-minute drive from my parents' house, and nothing is a 10-minute drive from my parents' house, not even Kroger, and I just wanted a job, and I already knew that I liked playing with food and being in the kitchen, so that seemed some type of reasonable segue in my life, and they were family friends, Jane and Emily. Um, and Maybe so- we should describe for people, well, like... Yeah, the Glitz is in Woodford County, in, southern, in the, middle of the nowhere. southern part of Woodford County, in Nunsuch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah none such. It doesn't even exist. And it's in the old school. People, there are people in Woodford County who would beg to differ no. with you. <laughs> it's in the old school of none it's in the such. Old school. None such. And it is a fabulous antique store. Run by Jane and Emily, who are sisters. Mm-hmm. Their mom started the business. And in the cafeteria of the old school, mm-hmm. they have a fabulous restaurant called The Glitz. Fabulous the, is the word. And the uh, 
the the store is called Irish Acres Antiques, and then the restaurant itself is called The Glitz. So I badgered them into giving me a job, and I can remember Jane being very practical and saying, you know, well, Stella, you're 14, and that's, that's too young to have a job, so, you know, maybe, <laughs> it's, when, it's maybe when you're... I know, so I went and did the... Re- My dad's a lawyer, so I went and did the research and had him print it out for me, like the statutes or whatever, and I went back and gave it to her. I was like... She tangled with the wrong 14-year-old I was girl. like, you can hire me, lady. Um, and so probably at that point, they hired me out of guilt or compassion or fear of a lawsuit <laughs> or possibly fear of a lawsuit um and i worked there every weekend for the rest of like my high school experience and then full-time in the summer um there was like a at the until i was 18 there's only so many hours i could work so i would just like right. work the maximum amount of hours that i could work um i just loved it and that was around the time that by the time i was in my senior year of high school I was like, well, let's just keep doing this. Well, there's this one cookie that you developed while you were there. <laughs> Can you tell us the name of the cookie and what's in it? Jane Cookies. Um, <clears throat> Jane Cookies. Jane Cookies. Uh, it's actually a family recipe that had been around prior to that, but they became so notoriously associated with Jane that they were renamed. They were my grandmother's cookies. And it was kind of like a kitchen sink cookie where it was um, oatmeal and chocolate chips and toffee and pecans and like brown sugar. I mean, basically everything went into the cookie. And so one time I made a big batch. I was probably 14-ish. And I gave a tin of them to Jane and Emily. Well, I gave them both to Jane. And I said, you know, when you see Emily, give her this tin of cookies, Merry Christmas, or whatever the occasion was. And several weeks went by, and Emily never said anything, like, thank you, or um, I really enjoyed the cookies, or even just, like, sweet gesture. She never mentioned it. And so then I got anxious that, you know, maybe she didn't like them, or I had no idea. And eventually, I think I just had to know, because I really admired her as a chef, and I wanted her yeah. feedback. Yeah, I mean, Emily, and- we should say, Emily McCauley is the chef of the Glitz, or was. Now she has a chef in Angel Pole, but at this time, she was the chef of the Glitz, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so... I finally broke down and asked her, you know, what she thought about them. And she's like, what are you talking about? What cookies? Um, and I was like, those cookies I made for Christmas a couple weeks ago in, in the tin. I gave them to Jane. And she's like, I never got them. And it turns out that Jane literally that night, like, ate them all. <laughs> like, both tins. It's like, not nice to out her on her <laughs> bench. Um, and so, yeah, obviously that became such a hysterical story amongst us that they were not called anything but Jane cookies They're, following that incident. But it's funny because the Jane cookie. I don't know lived. that she actually did it all in one night. That's not, that's that's not fair. That's uncharitable. Okay, she could have taken her time and just <laughs> done n- it over two days. Really over, yeah, some time period. That's a single best cookie I've ever had. Like one <laughs> of my, I, I have two extreme cookie food memories. One's my grandmother's icebox cookie, which mm. you know, you're never going to be able to beat that because it's like your grandmother's identities in this cookie. My grandma. like the butterscotch type. Yeah, they're they're like a windmill. You know, they're a loaf cookie and they just have nuts and brown sugar. I mean, the ingredient yeah. list is a five item list. But this Jane cookie, like you could give up everything you're doing right now and somehow start a cookie business like a Mrs. Whatever cookie business, but it would be like Stella's famous Jane cookies. I mean, you make billions and billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. It is the single best cookie I've ever had. I love it. I'll never forget because you made those. um, I don't remember what. I think you gave me a 10 of those for something. I can't remember when I got them and I couldn't understand the name. I didn't even understand what you were telling me when they. you were like, oh yeah, this is a Jane cookie. I'm like, did she say chain cookie? Like for years, I was like trying to figure out what the, the cookie, cookie. is. Finally, that's amazing. Jane cookie. Um, 
So anyway, but I'm not the only one in Woodford County that thinks this. Somehow they've gotten sort of a weird... Apparently other people are known to share them. Black market <laughs> reputation. Um, yeah, I actually, I stopped making them because I used to make them um, with bits of brickle toffee, uh-huh. which was later bought out by Heath and they changed the formula. Oh. And not only is the flavor different than it used to be, the toffee melts differently than it used to. It used to kind of retain like a little bit yeah, of a crunchy the factor. Crunchies. And now it more like softens in the oven. And that's been a very upsetting development. So I've tried a bunch of different toffees and now I'm I'm stubbornly making my own toffee and trying to engineer it so that it's baked texture is what I want as opposed to what it is when you first make it. So it's like a weird experiment that I'm all in pursuit of Jane cookies. Have you tried the Ruth Hunt toffee? I don't know that I have actually. You might want to try it because they sell it in bulk and mixed up pieces. I mean, they sell it in perfect little squares too, but, um, does it I've have never baked on it. it. Yeah, it has chocolate okay. on it. Does that make it not usable? Yeah, because well, the brickle didn't. So oh, okay. So that's like a, a fundamental difference. And they still sell it as bits of brickle, and it's basically uncoated Heath toffee now. Ooh. But it used to be a different formula from a different company. I'm going to find out if they have any that's un- uncoated, and we'll see. I'll see if I can get you some of that. Mm, interesting. But well, it's the, worth it's worth trying for science. It is, and 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 I would happily you know eat the test eat the test batch. So we've got you through to the glitz, and I mean, I I don't want to I don't want to run out of can time. Can I just say that this shows how big corporations can really change people's lives? The little people. <laughs> like my mother always enjoyed those Callard and Bowser licorice toffees. Yes, that's and true. They stopped making them, and it's such a tragedy when something like that happens. Well, people really enjoy their. Food, I, food items, especially, you come to rely yeah. on a specific thing. Yeah. It is that is kind of an interesting. It's important to our culture specifically. I feel like the various mass-produced foods, but that especially we how that are important. I mean, something like that can really affect your recipe, and then mm-hmm. goodbye cookie. Yeah, you can't have that cookie anymore Sayonara, because Jane. <laughs> <That's> so sad. <laughs> <laughs> say it ain't so. Say it. Say it ain't so. Okay. Um, all right. Sorry. I think we need to take a break for a minute <laughs> because I'm, I'm tearing up. I'm, You're I'm, clenched. I'm over my clenched. Yeah. Over the chain cookie. I'm so sad. Okay. Well, we'll be right back. <laughs> the song Robin sings through of endless springs The murmur of a brook At even time That ripples by a nook Where two lovers hide symphonic theme That Stella by Starlight not a dream My heart And I agree She's everything On earth To me
We're back. Kentucky Food Radio, Hot Water Cornbread. We're here with Stella Parks and your host, <laughs> or hostess, which do you prefer? It doesn't matter, honey. Hostess would be the more culinary. Uh, it gives the wrong connotation, though. I feel hostess. I need a little apron. I think she's apron. about to seat you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> seat you. May I help you? Well, yes, yeah, so I'm Wita. I'm Wita Michael, Chris's other half. And we're here talking to Stella Parks. We've been talking about what drove Stella into becoming a pastry chef and going to What culinary drove school. her to it? What drove her Madness. to it? Madness. Madness. <laughs> Compulsion. Madness. Clearly. I share all those same extreme personality <laughs> conflicts that you have. But lately, you've been doing something really new, which is super exciting and fascinating, actually. So you are, you've, you've, been transitioning or and I don't think it'll ever be a complete transition but you've done an incredible amount of writing mm. and you're a great writer you're an excellent writer and if you misbehave during the show I'm going to make you read this excerpt that Rona oh, printed out as a dramatic interpretation um but lately you've been starting to write for Serious Eats can you talk us t- tell us what Serious Eats is how people can find your writing there what the website address is and what it what it means and then a little bit about your job and what you write about yeah, so um, Serious Eats is uh, just SeriousEats.com. Uh, it's a website with just recipes and food editorial and thoughts and feelings. And basically it's where food nerds go to be dorks about powdered sugar. I just wrote a 1,300-word article on powdered <laughs> sugar that went up today. And I, I didn't know I had that much to say about powdered sugar. Well, what, what's I, the takeaway from the powdered sh- sugar article? Um, the article is actually about how um, in the push for organic... Mm-hmm. powdered sugar or organic products in general. Now there's organic powdered sugar, which I, I'm a big believer in organics, but that was kind of eye rolling for me because I'm not a huge fan of powdered sugar. It's kind of chalky and gritty and I don't, I don't use it very often. So I kind of was not impressed with organic powdered sugar until I read the label and saw that it's corn free. And so it's um, almost all brands use uh, tapioca starch instead of corn starch, which is hmm. traditionally added to um, powdered sugar in order to keep it free flowing. Right. Um, but organic cornstarch is hard to come by in this GMO-dominated industry. So they've switched to tapioca starch, which is a lot cheaper. Um, but it's actually a lot better because it, it more readily dissolves on the tongue and in low-temperature applications. So it's not going to leave hmm. that same gritty taste. Um, and I've been really... The tapioca starch does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the organic varieties. Um, in low-to-no-heat applications or if you're making a frosting or something, it, it, yeah. it'll dissolve more readily so you don't get that chalky sensation Mm. in the aftertaste um and I was really really impressed with that and so I was like guys can I can I get my feels about powdered sugar (laughs) and they're like go for it um but actually I've been writing off and on for them over the years I started writing for them in 2010 I think uh maybe it was 12 I don't know where am I when am I um, but it was a weekly column where I would just do like copycat recipes of homemade butterfingers and homemade jello pudding and things like that. Uh-huh. Um, and then things just got really busy. Um, when the food and wine situation came out and my work schedule just did not allow me to write for them as often as I did before. And so I made good friends with all of those guys back then. And so they've always, we've always been in touch. And whenever I would go to New York for something, I'd always like crash by the office and just guarantee that there was something there I could steal to eat. And, you know, if I just like happened to pop by on a random afternoon they'd be in the middle of like a margarita tasting like Stella we'll pour you one and like literally unannounced I just show up and next thing I know I'm like drinking margaritas and eating like sous vide ribs or something um so they've kind of just throughout the years we've been in touch and they've always 
seemed like they wanted me to come back and have always said, hey, you know, you should start writing for us again. And for a long time, I was just uh, too busy to engage with that. But lately, my schedule has kind of freed up. And I'm I was at a point where I needed to either get back into a restaurant. I had stepped down from 310 um, for a bit and was either going to need to start working in a kitchen again or just doing something else because I was getting a little stir crazy. And that was about the time that we were in talks again. So I was like, okay, well, let's like start moving towards maybe more of a full time food writing. And so it means you have to situation. do quite a bit of traveling, right? Yeah. Um, right now we're looking at a week every month in New York mm. at their offices, which has been a lot of fun. Um, they're in Chinatown, so there's there's no yeah. lack of delicious dumplings to eat yeah. and devour. Well, that sounds like I'd love to spend a week every month in Come New York. Come up with me. Uh, maybe I will. One time. At least one time. <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting that um, you were talking about tapioca starch. I know, well, I'm thinking that's a terrible, um, it's a terrible fate to have your mind wander like this, but tapioca starch and powdered sugar and, and tapioca starch in Chinatown, tapioca dumplings, have you ever had those? Mm. You know, where you take the tapioca pearls and you rehydrate them and that becomes the dumpling shell and then you put the pork inside and then you steam it and that cooks the pearls. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I was imagining just a, a dumpling made from tapioca starch. Well, you can do that, that too. Yeah. And actually, that I was, was going to tell you that I was going to ask you, actually, don't you think it's kind of interesting now that we're in this gluten-free zone of our culinary culture, kind of regionally, nationally, whatever, what I really resented it for a while I can't lie. But as of late, I've quit resisting and tried more experimentation. And uh, like over the last year and a half, as of late, that's what that kind of means to me. (laughs) But um, I find that tapioca starch is one of my all-time favorites to fry in. Have you ever tried that before? Like, I I don't do a ton of frying or at least a ton of breading and frying. Yeah. so I, I haven't gotten a chance to experiment with that. But why don't you fry me up something and, I'll tell you and what, let for, me like, taste it? I'll for, make the cookies. Yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm actually doing that tonight <laughs> for a dish. I'm going to do a um, twice-cooked uh, stone-crust pork loin with lobster. And we're doing a we're going to fry the pork loin first, and it's going to be potato starch. Mm, yeah, potato starch is I have fried Japanese recipes tend to use potato yeah, starch. Yeah, they use Japanese fried chicken. More, use yeah, it, yeah, yeah. But the tapioca, I read about this, and I can't remember where. So we dusted calamari and fried it. Um, <clears throat> the only difficulty is, is if it. And I was going to ask you if you knew much about the properties of tapioca starch because I do. Well, what makes it <clears throat> so? If you we had this recipe where you toss the fish, or mm-hmm. let's say it's calamari, you froth egg white, you toss it in egg white, you move it to the tapioca flour, and then you can pan fry. And it's delicious. I mean, it's super crispy. But I had this one experience where the cook that was frying for me left. So he went to the egg white, then he, he put the fish flesh side down in the tapioca starch. Mm-hmm. And then and dusted it and then left it in almonds. So that's like a trout. It's a way of doing trout almondine mm-hmm. where you get a nice coating of almonds on the trout. But the tapioca starch resulted in this really tough shell. Have you yeah. ever experienced that? Uh, well, so tapioca starch is one of the most hygroscopic of all starches, which means it sucks that? up uh, moisture from both the air and the environment around it. Oh. So it sounds like as it was sitting there, it was probably maybe drawing moisture out of the fish itself or and from it the egg super... and forming a thicker and thicker layer because it's very absorbent, even at room temperature. Whereas cornstarch, you have to heat it up to activate its thickening right. properties. 
Um, but tapioca starch works at much lower temperatures, sub-boiling. So it can start thickening and drawing out moisture. And those two combined factors. Well, that makes perfect sense. So you've got to roll it and go. You can dust it, then you got to get it right it, to the fat. And that's probably why it's crispier too, because yeah. it not only does it draw into that moisture that can then be released, um, it it usually breaks down at around 160 degrees mm -hmm. and cornstarch is more like 212 is where it fully breaks down. Um, so that means like during frying temperatures, uh, the cornstarch may possibly survive some of that, like, mm. especially on the inside of the fish that doesn't get to temperatures that high. Um, I wouldn't say. So you are a food scientist. But where the tapioca starch would be completely obliterated and thus not starchy or chalky on the tongue. So I just did a lot of reading. I don't have a background in this, but I love if you that. read enough, it doesn't Do you, matter. So can you find um, articles on Serious Eats about tapioca starch? Are you going to now write I'm a post on tapioca starch? I'm going actually to start a series called Starch Trek, the oh, next good. granulation. Starch Trek, the next granulation? Yes, that's correct. That's For the last three of you who are still listening to the radio. <laughs> Um, but it's going to cover. What are you saying? But it's going to cover um, all the different starches you can thicken a pie with, and which, oh my which ones have better properties with which types of custard fillings or fruit fillings. I love high acid. this as a subject. I think this um, is really, really smart, really good. But I'm excited. Yeah, I just got approved on on that one. I pitched the series, and the nerds over there supported my decision. You're like a genius. You're a genius. She's genius, everyone. No, it's true. That is fascinating. That's a great. Um, now you're gonna to have to come up with your own hand sign, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll need my own hand. Yeah, sign. Yeah, you need for a sure. hand sign. You need a death grip. You need the whole thing. I already have a death grip. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but we're digressing. One of the things that you just posted, also, you did you did your powdered sugar column for Serious Seeds, but you also just did one on hot crust buns. And since it's Holy Week and Easter's upon us, um, uh, Friday is Good Friday. This Friday is Good Friday, yeah. which is the traditional day to eat hot cross buns. Yeah, is that right? Definitely. What can can you tell us a little bit about the history of hot cross buns and what they are? And well, so I think the learned? the thing that I feel most proud about in this little story that I researched um, was discovering that um, in the 19th century, particularly, hot cross buns were cut. the The cross shape was cut rather than piped on now we think of this flour water paste being right. piped on top but they were cut and then they were glazed with a paste of egg whites and sugar and this would have been granulated sugar back in the day and like mm -hmm. finely ground at home beaten sugar um but so essentially it was a very thin royal icing that was brushed over the top and what this would do was like where the hot cross buns were cut in the cross shape on the top the glaze would settle into that cross shape and that would be a wider region on, right. on the it would highlight the cross um, and so I tried this out, and it makes a very scary white bun, almost like whitewashed, <laughs> which may have been symbolic of, of Christ's yeah, tomb and, right. and the cross on top of it also. Um, but it was a nice justification for those of us who like a little frosting on top of our hot cross buns to know that that actually has a legitimate historical origin as opposed to um, the flour and water paste, which seems to be more of a 20th century movement. Um, oh, yeah, I would think so. It's in, uh, well... I mean, it was probably these Easter, all these different Easter sweetbreads way predated Christianity, and they were just brought in certainly to end Lent. Yeah, and so that's what I, I was. I was wondering if it had an ancestor, the hot cross bun, and it's. I think it's uh, my guess is um, an Irish bread called Barn Breek. I could be mm. pronouncing this horribly wrong. It's pronounced Barn Brack today, 
Um, but it was it was made um, in the shape of a wheel to represent the moon. It, the dough was stained with saffron to represent divine light or sunshine. And they would oh, work nice. poppy seeds or caraway into the dough, and that was the stars. And then they would score it um, with a cross, but it was it was a sun cross with the the rim of the yeah. bread would form the outer circle, and then the score in the middle um, would divide it into quarters, and that was representative of the seasons. And this was uh, pre Christianity in Ireland for sure. Um, and so I think that's what hot cross buns evolved from because um, Baran Breek was really popular at Imbolc, mm-hmm. which is um, a celebration of early spring. And so I think um, later on, as Christianity became uh, the dominant religion on Ireland, that it was probably just absorbed into the Lenten tradition. After um, St. Patrick came and converted everyone. Well, yeah. Well, so um, this this bread, Baran Breek, was um, baked for Imbolc, which later became St. Bridget's Day. Oh, yeah. Um, and she was supposedly a very good friend of St. Patrick. And um, so it's easy to see how a bread that was related to her was kind of pushed later into the spring closer. I love those. I love food history, and I like looking at the evolution of recipes and seeing how they come forward in time. And I just wondered if you had any favorites. I mean, that's a beautiful example. Do you have any recipes that you've followed or that you've researched where, um, you know, how, well, the hamburger is something sometimes I'll I'll, I'll say when I talk to kids. I'm like, do you know how long we've been making hamburgers, Mm. you know? And it's interesting because people don't affiliate anything that they're eating today with something that started four or 5,000 years ago. Right. And so now we've heard this about the hot cross bun. Are there any other recipes like, cause I know one of your big signatures in your writing in the past has been, to, yeah, to show people how to make marshmallows, to show people how to, you know, make all these sort of mani- mm-hmm. what we consider manufactured foods you bring back to the home level yeah, and show people that you demystify them or show them how they can do it themselves at home. And in the process of writing about that, are there some that you, are there any favorites that you have that have ancient roots? Ancient roots. Or old roots. Oh, I have, sometimes I have trouble with truly ancient roots because I think sometimes food writers are eager to connect foods that aren't necessarily thoroughly related, like saying um, cheesecake dates back to the time of ancient Greece when people would mash together <laughs> globs of coagulated goat's milk with honey. And you're like, you know, that's really not Maybe cheesecake, not. guys. Like, unless you could go down to the Agora and, like, pick up some graham crackers, I'm not going to accept this as any type of legitimate ancestor to cheesecake. Um, so I don't like to go too far back, but of course, I mean, certain culinary pairings are just timeless. So the idea that someone would want to have sweetened cheese for dessert is not a, oh, you know, right. a terrible shock. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I like to find like a little bit of a closer, closer living ancestor, so to speak. Than... Well, sometimes the relationship is really fascinating just within a single mon- just within a hundred year time. Oh gosh, absolutely. Because if you think about just a recipe that's a hundred years old and everything that's happened since 1916 or 1900 and today in terms of food manufacturing and marketing and development, it's really, uh, you know, a sea change and, uh, the impact that manufacturing's had on food, sometimes to the better, sometimes not. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting to study and look at. It's a very curious relationship. Like um, in the 1930s, during the Depression, um, Nabisco started advertising for graham crackers um, with these advertisements that were called crumb cookery. And like the new wave of science, <laughs> like use crumb cookery in your recipes. Because it so was no bake, right? It was no bake. And that's, yeah. that's really how graham cracker crusts got their rise. And really before the 1930s, you don't see key lime pie or um, cheesecake made with a graham cracker crust. So it's 
kind of interesting, like when these advertising pushes, you know, have such a huge impact on the personal household level of how people bake. Um, but suddenly it was like a reason to buy graham crackers, which is something, you know, if times are tough, you're not going to be buying graham crackers. It's like the first thing that should go. Right. But they found a way to make their product useful, even and in troubled times. Right. Um, and created a complete American classic. Oh, that's a great example. I love that. I, I So, well, I, I know we're... I have a few minutes left with you, and there's one thing that I wanted you to talk about because I don't remember how many years ago this was, but at some point, and it was after I knew you, I knew you when you went, mm-hmm. you left and moved to Japan. You yes. moved to Tokyo, I believe. Straight out of Wallace Station, actually. <laughs> I can, I can still remember like, saying, like, I'm, I'm going to go to Japan. And... <laughs> it was great. I mean, yeah, what, what do you say to that? There's no argument for not going. But can you talk, so when I'll, I'll, I actually remember the day you told me you were going, I remember a lot about you saying, there's this, they're really into these weird cake techniques. And I've always wondered since that day, what the heck were they doing (laughs) in Japan? So talk a little bit about that and talk about how that time in Japan influenced, because I I see the influence in your work, but talk about it. I love that because... Because you know me before and after. And I think almost everybody else knows me from just after. Like, me going to Japan, I think, is kind of a starting point for a lot of people understanding my careers, knowing where I came from. And I love that you know what I was like before. Um, back when you were all about the danger brownie. Back with the danger brownies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my proudest moment. <laughs> Um, so when I was in Japan, my goal was, so the Japanese take pastry very seriously as a culture, Mm -hmm. um, and not only their own types of sweets, but also French pastries in particular. And it's not even remotely uncommon to be in some obscure little neighborhood in the middle of nowhere, Japan, and find a pastry shop where their chef actually trained in Japan. I mean, trained in France, Um, which is crazy. Like, you don't find that here. Like, you might find Mm -hmm. in the big city, there's, you know, obviously different chefs who've trained abroad and such. But, like, it's so universal. Like, well, well, of course, I want to become a pastry chef. Why would I not go to France and learn how it's done? (laughs) Um, So they take it really seriously. And I've, I've never been to Paris, so I can't really speak to, you know, the comparison, but I've, I've heard from a lot of friends who have been to both countries that, that the pastries in, in Japan and Tokyo in particular are just kind of like bar none, just amazing. And yeah. the variety, uh, they one, a really big um, pastry in Japan is called Mont Blanc, and it's, it's a classic French pastry right. that's all but dead. Everywhere globally, <laughs> and there's one cafe in, in Paris that's famous for making it. Um, but in Japan, it's a standard staple as much as an eclair or a croissant would be. Um, How do they present the Mont Blanc in Japan? Uh, it's it's like a little individual pastry, maybe two and a half inches across. And then the, the chestnut puree is piped out of, well, there's a special extruder for it, but it looks like a giant pile of spaghetti on mm-hmm. top of the dessert. And it's piled up really high to look like a mountain because it's the white mountain. Yeah. And it's like dusted in powdered sugar um, to to finish it off. And there's usually like a candied chestnut, like in the heart of it. And they love chestnuts and they, they have a lot of chestnuts. chestnuts. Oh yeah. Chris is showing me a little picture. Isn't that beautiful? It's pretty. I, I made it, so I shouldn't probably. Oh, this is this is Stella. Oh, he's I giving. It he's too, giving huh? me Stella's picture of her Mont Blanc. Oh, I love that. Is that noise? That's just what came up. You didn't know this oh. came up on Google, Stella. Yeah. I'm the first Google. You're the result. first Google, Google result. Mont Blanc pastry. Oh, I'm so excited. Man. Stella is the first Google, the first Google 
Mont Blanc. I am the king of a very small and specific <laughs> little hill, and I love it. <laughs> you are. You're our honeybee. Um, so my goal was to ideally, like, learn Japanese and start working in these, right. in these bake shops and kind of learning, like, a little bit of the East-West kind of technique. Um, and so I was in language school there during my time period, um, 40 hours a week. So it was kind of a full-time job of, of learning. Um, but then I ended up, um, falling in love and moving home and not really <laughs> continuing to pursue. How did, you, how did you fall in love with John from Japan? Um, I was home between semesters and he was kind of like a, his parents knew my parents, but I didn't know him at all. And I had just gotten out of a relationship. I mean, I had maybe been out of a relationship for like two weeks and I, I met John. Um, and he like just kind of like randomly called me up. A mutual friend gave him my number. Um, so it was like a really random meeting. I was like, okay, Betty, well, nice meeting you. I'm off to Japan. Um, but our romance blossomed nonetheless. Uh, yeah. Mar- <laughs> married 11 years. Yeah, 11 years. That's almost. wonderful. Almost so there. you're in Japan. You, you, you end up moving home. But before you left, what were some of the, what, like, what was your, what's your all-time food pastry in terms of pastry, food oh, memory gosh. of, was it the block? The Mont Blanc that you like the most? Definitely. That's, that's been something that I keep coming back to and I keep having an obsession with because it was at every cafe you would go to. But they're also really big into chiffon cake and any, any kind of sponge cake at large. Um, so I ate a lot of really good chiffon cake over there. Previously, mm. I think I kind of thought of chiffon cake as being boring, just like, eh, it's fluffy. Yeah, you've got to do... I wasn't right. that impressed, but they would have like, you know, maple chiffon cake that would have a really potent maple flavor because it was made from mm. maple sugar. Um, and they'd be so tall and so fluffy. They, they deeply appreciate fluffy desserts. Um, and so I think the cakes made a big impression on me. And like a birthday cake in Japan is, um, like two layers of like a vanilla chiffon cake with vanilla whipped cream between the layers and strawberries. Oh, and it's just so fresh and so light. And it's just a really nice change of pace from American cakes, cakes. which are heavier, butterier, slathered in buttercream like they're like they eat like a meal which is nice but if you've had a giant birthday dinner finishing up with that can yeah, be a little hard. heavy um did you do a lot of baking while you were there almost none because nobody has an oven <laughs> oh. um it was really hard to find an oven and everyone would be like oh you're a pastry chef why don't you make me a baguette in your microwave like I, but and then it's like they thought i was faking like oh, okay no i understand you can't do it <laughs> yeah i'm sure you're a pastry chef in america um so then for valentine's day i bankrupt myself buying chocolate in tokyo i mean i must have spent 200 dollars to get enough chocolate and cream to make truffles for everyone that i knew that had been skeptical Sweet to you <laughs> of my of my skill uh so i made a million truffles for everybody but it was really hard because i had this tiny little kitchen space and a microwave i had to microwave the cream to melt the chocolate oh gosh it was not a very ideal situation for food prep but and i think um well i mean you've what upon coming home i think the it's in i love the i remember you coming back and telling me about the packaging in japan how that really influenced ah, you such great packaging the packaging of everything <laughs> in japan is is really beautiful and that I, I think you can see all of that influence of aesthetic it's just, in your there's work. a lot of a thoughtfulness that goes mm-hmm. into it where um if you buy like a little package of gum or something um here you know it's like if it's like a little bitty cardboard box like a tic-tac kind of container mm-hmm. you know you've got this one tic-tac or candy like rattling around the box but some of their boxes are designed to break down and collapse in stages so if you've got like one little piece of candy you can break the box down to be a very small box that's enclosing this one piece of candy (laughs) so it's just like so precious and thoughtfully designed um that i think i i appreciated 
that level of planning. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Well, Stella, it is so, it's so nice to talk to you. And it's so wonderful to see you doing so well. Well, thank you. And um, I know that, and and I know you have, you have a big national career in front of you and you're going to be a celebrated food writer and pastry chef the rest of your life. But I know you always are our ambassador from Kentucky, too. <laughs> it's true. I know you're a Kentucky girl at heart. I, I reference that as often as I can in my writing. <laughs> it's true. She does. Well, let's take a quick bake. We'll come back with some calendar. A quick calendar. bake. A, a, quick, a quick bake. Ooh, you need to go on that bake-off <laughs> show. You would clean up. All right. <laughs> She bake them just right. She bakes a biscuit where well, she bake all night. She's a biscuit baking woman. She's a biscuit baking woman. I'm gonna tell the world about that biscuit baking woman of mine. She bakes her biscuits, she bake them nice and king. She bake them good enough for the queen. She's a biscuit baking woman. She's a biscuit baking woman. I'm gonna tell the world about that biscuit bacon woman of mine. She ain't so tall, but she kinda low. She gets biscuits, yeah, she got good dough. She's a biscuit bacon woman. She's a biscuit bacon woman. I'm gonna tell the world about that biscuit bacon woman of mine. Break it out now. She's the best biscuit woman in this town. She's a biscuit big woman. She's a biscuit big woman. I wanna tell the world about that biscuit big woman I'm. She bakes a biscuit, bake them at night. Wake up in the morning, she got them just right. She's a biscuit big woman. She's a biscuit big woman. We're back. With hot water cornbread on Kentucky Food Radio with our own biscuit bacon women. <laughs> Stella did tell me she likes to bake cornbread, even though she's been yankified. Her cornbread, yeah. her cornbread's been yankified by all her time up north. She said, "There's, there's a little sweetener in it. A little sweetener in it. Hey, I like sweet cornbread. I love it's so good. I love traditional non-sweet cornbread, and I love sweet cornbread. I like even like I can." I remember, did you make this a sweet, like a sweet cake cornbread with coconut oh, milk yeah, or something in Lamington. it? Yeah, Is that yours? Yeah, it's, well, it's like a, a New Zealand slash Australian dessert where it's like corn, like a sweet corn cake mm-hmm. cornbread with like chocolate and coconut and like a, sometimes there's like a raspberry jam I thought you layer. made that for me one time. I don't know. I was wondering if I ever had it on the menu. It was delicious. And that liquid chocolate. Oh, God. Lord, <laughs> save me. Oh, but um, we were going to talk about Easter foods. We're kind of running out of time because we had such a great discussion with Stella. Um, 
And so let's talk a little bit about upcoming events and what's on the food calendar. And on April 2nd, 2016, the Kentucky Green Living Fair at the Center for Rural Development in Somerset is having, um, so it's the Green Living Fair. It's all about sustainability. And that includes food systems and all, uh, all different kinds of aspects of sustainability. That's from 10 to 6. You can find out more information and sign up by going to www.kygreenlivingfair.com. kygreenlivingfair.com. Then there's the Food Systems Symposium at, U at the University of Kentucky that's open to the public. Building a campus-wide multi-stakeover initiative multi-stakeholder initiative, a program on sustainability and food system studies. I think there's a theme here, Stella. <laughs> Learning from our leaders in the field. That's going to be on April 7th. So the Food Systems Symposium, April 7th, uh, 3.30 to 6.30 at the ES Goodborn. On, at, that's over by the football stadium at UK. There is parking there. Um, and finally, there's going to be a benefit for the Bluegrass Double Dollars Happy Hour at West 6th. And that's coming up this week on Thursday night, uh, March 24th, 5 to 7. And you can also donate wooden nickel donations all of March. What is Bluegrass Double Dollars, you ask? Well, it's an initiative by um, the Fayette County Urban Government, uh, the Lexington Fayette County Urban Government, to um, double the, and, and our um, local food coordinator, was responsible for making this happen. So you could, they will double your SNAP purchases at farmer's markets for fresh ingredients. So um, it's the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, otherwise known as SNAP, and that our farmer's market now takes SNAP dollars. And if you are at the farmer's market and you want to buy a fresh tomato, this program will give you add a dollar to the dollar that you already have to increase the accessibility and distribution of fresh foods all around. Isn't that great? That's a fantastic initiative. It really is. Stella, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's we want Stella to start. Lane. We want her to start a sweet radio show here. A sweet radio show here. At Lexington radio Community Hour. Radio. <laughs> thank you very much. We'll see you next Tuesday, everybody, at 2 o'clock for Hot Water Cornbread. This is Weta Michael, and I'm here with Chris Michael. Rona, we love you. Hope you're feeling better. <laughs>